So we're going to talk about Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Numbers 15. Numbers 15. Um, there's, this, uh, there's this obscure passage in the Hebrew Scriptures. Got something special to help us with the sermon today. Um, there's this obscure passage in Numbers 15 that says this. Numbers 15, beginning with verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout all the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corner of your garment. With a blue cord in each tassel, you will have these tassels to look at so that you remember all the commands, or actually the word there is so that you remember the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, which are the commands of the Lord. That you remember the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourself by chasing after the lust of your own eyes or hearts and eyes. So in ancient Judaism, you, you wore this prayer shawl. Let's see if I know how to wear this prayer shawl. Charla told me she said she appreciated the fact that it matched my outfit as I left the house this morning. Um, on these prayer shawls, you had these tassels, um, and on this, on this, the largest tassel, you had, um, you had five knots. And each of those knots represented a book of the Torah, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the idea was that it was something tactile. One of the things I find interesting is that God is a God of props. Like, it's often, God often uses very physical, intangible reminders that he is with us or that we are to be his people, right? And so um, the idea was that you would, throughout your day, you would wear this prayer shawl and that you would play with this tassel and you would be reminded of the commands in Scripture. And so that when your heart began to wander from, from God, um, that you would be reminded, oh, no, no, I am a follower of God. Like, I am... I live under these commands. I live under this covenant. And, and the edge of the prayer shawl was called a kanaf. And, and then these, uh, the, the tassels on the prayer shawl were called um, zitzi, or if you're from Alabama, t-zit-zit. Um, <laughs> sorry to my friends from Alabama. It's just so easy to pick on, um, particularly with college football season coming up. Anyway, um, got distracted. Um, anyway, these were the tassels or the zitzi were the edge. But what's interesting is that, that the word for uh, borders or kanaf, the, the edge of the prayer shawl, also is the same word for wings. And you can kind of see how the prayer shawl kind of looks like wings. And so the word that was used for the borders of the prayer shawl is the same word that means wings. One side note, um, if you grew up in church, you often heard people say, find yourself a prayer closet, go to your prayer closet. What they were referring to in that passage was in um, Judaism when you would go to the temple and everyone is praying and you're getting annoyed at listening to their prayers, you would take your hands like this and create a prayer closet. That's what they referred to when they talked about the prayer closet. But so what's interesting though is that, so you have this, this passage and, and this like when, when Jesus is walking around, Jesus has prayer tassels, has zitzi hanging from his garments. Um, but what's interesting is you get this obscure passage in Malachi. Um, uh, you get this passage in Malachi 4.2. So Malachi is like the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. Um, and it's written about 400 years before Jesus shows up in the scene and is looking forward towards the coming Messiah. And you get this, this passage that says, But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise up, 
with healing in its wings. And the word there was healing in its kanaf, healing in its zitzi, the edges of the border of the, the prayer shawl, the edges of the garment. There will be healing in his wings. The expectation was, was that when the Messiah appears, when the Messiah shows up, there will be healing in his wings. The Messiah will bring healing. And one of the things that we find is central to the life and the ministry, to the life and teachings of Jesus is that you can be delivered from the things that hold you captive and that you can be healed. We're going to look in a minute of some of the moments where, where, where Jesus highlights healing and where he heals and sets people free from the things that hold them captive. But healing is a hard topic to discuss. Partially because I've heard some of your stories, right? You, you gathered around uh, friends and family members and you, you prayed and you had faith and you did all of the right things and, and then that person or that thing that you were praying for didn't go the way that you'd hoped and that you'd expected. You'd prayed that, that someone would be healed and then they're taken from you. And we don't, it's hard to wrap our heads around this and to get a, a good theological argument. And so it's hard for me even to talk about healing partially, not just because I've heard your stories, but because I have my own story, right? My father uh, got cancer about three years ago and he was the best person I knew. And I mean, he had people across the country praying for him. And, and we believed that God was going to do something miraculous and was going to heal him. And then I get a phone call telling me that he's passed. What's up with that? How, how, what is up with that? But yet, but yet, here we are, we're stuck with this idea that central to Jesus' ministry was that people were going to be healed and those who were held captive, those who were under oppression, would be set free. Jesus, when he's here, walks among people and he interacts with them in deeply personal ways. He eats meals, he fishes, he sits up late at night sitting around campfires talking about life and theology. Jesus reaches out and touches those that no one else would reach out and touch. Those who were seen as being unclean, those who were seen as being contagious. And as Jesus touched people, as people came into contact with Jesus, those who are unclean are made clean. Those who are unholy who are made holy. Those who are sick are made well. Jesus' ministry was not simply about some spiritual pie in the sky in the by and by that things will be okay, but Jesus' ministry has a deeply physical component. There's a deeply physical pronouncement to what Jesus is up to. Jesus shows up and he says this, the central message of this, that the kingdom of God has come Near, Not that the kingdom of God, have I come to, to cart you off or to, to take you off to the kingdom, but the kingdom of God has come near. And if you want to understand what Jesus was about, it's wrapped up in that phrase, the kingdom of God has come near. Now just as a side note, we, we use the kingdom of God a lot, but it's kind of an antiquated um, phrase. We don't talk a lot about kingdoms with exception of maybe like princess diary or something like that but but it's an antiquated term and the best way to describe kingdom might be this it is the rule of god it is the reign of god it is the administration of god right? god's way of doing things 
has come into the present. And wherever Jesus goes, the rule of God follows. And so when the rule of God comes, this is what it looks like. Jesus' life is saying, as Jesus walks among people, he is saying, when God's rule fully comes, this is what it looks like. Those who cannot walk will begin to walk. Those who cannot see will see. Those who are held captive will be set free. Those who have been ill will be healed. This is what it looks like. And what's interesting is it, when the kingdom of God comes, it, it, it begins to reverse the curse of Genesis. So Genesis, remember Genesis, we spent like, I don't know, a, way too long in the first few books, of, the first few chapters of Genesis. And in Genesis, we looked at what happens when, when brokenness enters our world. In, in, in brokenness, in the, the first three chapters of Genesis, we see an unraveling of relationships, both our relationship between each other so there's a, you know, all of a sudden pe the world is in harmony, and next thing you know, brothers are killing brothers. There's a, a disintegration between um, humans. There's also a disintegration or an unraveling of relationship between God and God's creation. So in the beginning, in Genesis, right, we read that God would walk in the cool of the evening with his creation, and next thing you know, they have been cast out from the garden, and there's a gulf, there's a separation. And then finally, there's, a, there's an unraveling of relationship between God and God's creation, the earth. Right? So what was once something beautiful to be completely enjoyed also now becomes a moment of toil. And so in the rule and reign of God, it is the unraveling or the reversal of what we see taking place in Genesis. In Genesis, we discover that when humanity goes its own way, there's brokenness. But when Jesus shows up, there becomes healing. And the things that were shattered begin to come back together. With Jesus, the kingdom of God comes near. Wherever Jesus goes, the sick are healed, the powers of darkness flee, ordinary people find new direction for their lives. Some people would leave everything to follow him. When Jesus comes near, the creation begins to heal. Relationships begin to heal. Broken bodies begin to mend. And Jesus sees himself as the embodiment of Israel's long-awaited hope. And it's not simply a spiritual hope, but it has real-world implications. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. This, by the way, is Jesus' coming-out sermon. This is the first sermon that Jesus ever preaches. I imagine as he goes into the synagogue that day, knowing that he is going to be preaching his first sermon there are nerves and butterflies. What shall I say? So as we see in a moment, if you've ever like heard of a new preacher, in fact, this is true for me, when, when I started the table, no joke, our services were out often in 55 minutes um, because I only had so much to say. Um, and the longer I've, I've been a pastor, it's amazing how much longer I can speak. I'm like, oh, that was only 55 minutes, so that wasn't bad at all, which I'm sure all of you agreed with. Um, but Jesus' first sermon is so short, but you'll hear, see here in a minute. We read this in Luke 4, 14, beginning with 14. Um, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. His teachings in their synagogues, he, he was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went up into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll 
of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he unrolled it, and he found this place where it's written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to pray, proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then hands the scroll down, back, and then he essentially says, this is about me, everybody. Like, in me, you are seeing the fulfillment of this text. Let's pray, right? That, that was it, right? That was the sermon. Like, I am the fulfillment of the thing you have been longing and waiting for. I am here because, and, and through me, the kingdom of God is coming near. And the kingdom was tied to freedom and healing and the reversal of brokenness. And what I find fascinating is that the healing and release was more than simply about physical healing, but it was also about welcoming those back into the fold who had been excluded. So often the people that Jesus healed were people that because of their illness or that because of their sickness had been excluded, had been kicked out or been kicked to the margins of society. Right? So when Jesus heals the leopard, when you got leprosy, when you got leprosy, your life was over. All your friends and your family and anyone you had anything to do with go the opposite way. When you were ill, when you contracted a sickness, you were often seen as doing something to displease God. That's why you'd gotten ill, right? You must have done something. Remember, the, there's this really fascinating moment when Jesus and his disciples are hanging out and there's a man who is sitting by the gate who, who can't walk. And the disciples are like, hey, Jesus, we got a theological question for you. Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus is just like one of those moments. He's like, what are you talking about? He's not sick because he did anything wrong. But there was this idea in the wor world at this time was that if, if you were sick, if you had an illness, if you were less than perfect then somehow you had brought down the curses of the gods. And so one of the things that happens in healing, as Jesus begins to heal people, he begins to welcome them back into the fold. And so Jesus' first sermon is a word of hope to those who've been marginalized, to those who've been excluded, to those who've been told that they don't belong and they're not good enough. Jesus' actions bring healing and reconciliation. The people who have been excluded, the people who have had demons cast out of them, who have been healed of leprosy, who have been healed of what are seen as contagious diseases at the time, they can go home. Their families welcome them home. They're no longer relegated to hanging out by a pool hoping to be healed. But later on, John the Baptist, who is Jesus' cousin, this is, this is one of the more perplexing passages in all of Scripture to me personally. John the Baptist, who's kind of, you know, uh, he's boisterous, let's just say that. And John the Baptist is this fascinating figure who causes a lot of attention. And, but he also happened to be Jesus' cousin. And because of his boisterousness and because he had a loud mouth, he found some, finds himself at odd, uh, odds with Herod. Um, and so he finds himself in prison, um, and he is facing a death sentence. So here he is. He's a captive. And what does Jesus proclaim that he will do? He will free the captive. 
And news has been trickling back to, to, to John through his disciples that, yo, your cousin Jesus, he is really causing a firestorm. I mean, you should see all the people that are being healed. I mean, we've never seen anything like it. And John's like, what the crap? I'm stuck here in prison. And so he sends his disciples, and he sends his disciples and say, like, are you the, are you the one that we were waiting for? Because I thought that when you showed, we were going to tag team. I mean, things were going to get real. But now here you are out there. you got this big falling, and I'm stuck in this, this jail. Are you the one we've been waiting for? And Jesus responds, and he tells John's disciples, go and tell John this. Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had disease diseases and illnesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. And so he replied to the messenger, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. He's pulling back in that passage from Luke 4. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He says, look, Look what's taking place. Go and let him know what is taking place, and he will know that the kingdom has come near. But yet John is still in prison. And when the Messiah comes, the, things, the expectation was that things were going to change, there'd be healing and freedom. But it doesn't always look like we expect. Then a couple of verses later in Luke, Luke's gospel, again, we're hanging out in Luke today. Uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 8, beginning with verse 40, we, we find one of the more beautiful stories in the life and ministry of Jesus. It says this, Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they all were expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house. Because his only daughter was dying, a girl of about 12 was dying. Now, one of the things I've realized when I'm reading through Scripture is that anytime you see detail, you should pay attention and notice and underline. I don't even know what this means, honestly. I've got conjecture. But just like as a side note, like there's, the girl was 12. In a minute, we're going to discover 12 again. And there were 12 tribes of, of Israel, right? There are 12 tribes of Israel. And, and Jesus is constantly proclaiming, look, if you don't turn around... The end for Israel is coming soon, right? You can't keep on the path that you're on. And so this girl is sick, and she's on the verge of death, and she happens to be 12 years old. And as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. It's insane the number of people who have come to see Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Really fascinating, right? The two 12s right next to each other. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Now, here she was. First of all, she was a woman. So that meant she was already of a lower status. But then she was a woman who had been bleeding. And we could go back and read some really fascinating passages from Leviticus on those who are, who, who are bleeding. Right? You, you want to talk about the least of the least, the most unclean of the unclean, you would find a woman who had been bleeding. And I mean, that's about as low as you can get. Right. In fact, if you were to come into contact with someone who, were, were, who was bleeding, like you would be made unclean. And so, like the lepers, this woman was an outcast. 
And so the crowds are crushing Jesus, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and no one could heal her. No one could heal her. Actually, Mark's gospel says the doctors had drained her dry of all of her money, essentially, and no one could heal her. Luke was a doctor, which I think is interesting that he kind of takes that part out, and he just says that no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. It's a bad translation. The word there is is she touched his tassels. She touched his zitzi. She touched his kanaf. Why? Because there was the expectation that when the Messiah came, there would be healing in his zitzi, in his kanaf. There would be healing in his wings. And so she says, and so Jesus says at this moment, this is the dumbest thing Jesus ever says, by the way. Who touched me? Remember, the crowds are pushing in on him that they're almost crushing. And he's like, who who, who touched me? The disciples think he is losing it. And and because they, it says when they had all denied it, right? Because immediately there's like the 12, I didn't touch. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's like, Jesus is clearly like, there's something about this touch that's got him a little he noticed, and so like, I, don't, I didn't touch you. I mean, I don't think I touched you. I'm not sure. I mean, we're all kind of shoved in on you, Jesus. So when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing up against you. Have you lost it? Right? Like, I don't know who touched you. You and your riddles. I am tired of it. I am hungry, and the crowd is giving me claustrophobia. And Jesus said, but Jesus said, no, 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 no. Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. This was not an ordinary touch. Something was different. Then the woman seeing, then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed. A woman who for 12 years had tried to fade into the background, had hoped that nobody would notice her because if they saw her, they would go the other way. A woman who had been unnoticed for 12 years, realizing that she cannot go unnoticed any longer, that she could not go unnoticed came trembling and fell at his feet. The raw emotion that is in some of the gospel text is so powerful. I've missed this every time I read, read it, but imagine that this woman who's tried to go unnoticed and now she's been called out is so afraid that she is trembling. What is he going to do? Is he going to chew me out? And in the presence of all the people, she told them why he had touched, why she had touched him, and how he had instant, she had instantly been healed. And then he said to her, "This is such a kind passage, or such a kind phrase, daughter, daughter, daughter. Your faith has healed you." Go in peace. This woman had overcome all of these boundaries. I cannot imagine what it was like for her that morning as she awoke, knowing that she'd heard that Jesus was coming near today. Knowing that for 12 years she had been broken and that no one wanted to be around her. Knowing that for 12 years she had been an outcast and that no one had been able to help her, she'd exhausted all of her options. And as she woke that morning, she knew that she risked a lot. 
right? She so hoped that she would be unnoticed because if anyone noticed, they would probably have excluded her or forced her away or made her go home. She knew that she had, this had to be a stealth mission because she was breaking every social boundary. All she knew, she just knew, if I could just get to the edge of his garment, I can be healed. But she's scared. She literally shakes the moment she's discovered. There is so much fear and adrenaline running through her body. But it's such a powerful move because she is going to get to Jesus whatever it takes. There's another story in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 7, where a prostitute breaks into the house where Jesus is hanging out with, with some Pharisees. Another social boundary that is broken. So Jesus is hanging out with the upper echelon of Jewish society. He's hanging out with a bunch of dudes. And when a bunch of dudes are together, the women are supposed to kind of stay away, particularly if you are a prostitute. So Jesus is eating and drinking with them, and she breaks into the house. She busts, I'm guessing that she is busting past like a doorman or whoever's at the door, because these are like wealthy individuals. And so she busts into the house, and she makes a beeline for Jesus, and she crawls to his feet, and she breaks open a bottle of expensive perfume bought most likely with the money she has earned as a prostitute, and she pours it on Jesus' feet, and she begins weeping and crying. And the, and the Pharisees begin to try to shove her away, and Jesus says, who, who is more grateful for me? Those of you who have your entire lives thought you were so righteous, or this woman who has been excluded for her entire life? He even uses an analogy of money. Who is more grateful, the person who's been given a small debt or the one who's been given a large debt? And Jesus welcomes her with kindness and with open arms. But she knew she was willing to break through any boundary to get to Jesus. And it doesn't matter what world you're living in. Right? A prostitute showing up at a pastor's house is going to take notice. It's breaking boundaries. You're not supposed to do that particularly when the dude is Jesus. But she's like, I don't care. I don't care about what the customs and what other people think and the social boundaries. I have to get to Jesus. This is what, this is what it means to have faith. It is often taking a leap of desperation in the dark and saying, look, I don't know what all this means. I don't have it all figured out but I have to get to Jesus. There's something so transformative about Jesus, but there's also something so kind and so healing about his presence that these women, these people who are cast to the margins are willing to break through any boundary because they need the healing touch of Jesus. And I think the point can be made that Jesus receives all sorts of people who have very incomplete faith and who have their lot and whose lives are not all together. And he offers them healing. He offers them grace. He offers them kindness and he offers them peace. There's a desperation 
They have put aside all the voices in their head that says, look, this is a waste of time. I have to see Jesus. I started by saying this is a hard sermon for me to preach, right? Because, because I'm, I have a hundred, I think it's 160 hours of theological training. And the problem with having too much theological training is you want to break everything down to its tiniest part. And what you end up doing is you strip the power from the gospel. I, I want to explain to you that, um, well, the reason that Jesus healed, you know, that woman and didn't heal John the, or free John the Baptist was because, you know, and then we go on like some long treaties. I don't know. I want to explain to you why some people are healed and others aren't. I don't know. I, I told you, begin by telling you that this is personal for me because my, I, we prayed so desperately that my father, and if anyone should have been healed, it should have been my father. He had this entire church that was dependent on him. He had a wife and grandkids, and he was just the kindest person you knew. Why, why wasn't he healed? On the other hand, on the other hand, I was five years old, and I came down with a blood disease that was called purpura. The doctors thought for a long time that I had leukemia. I would just, I couldn't sleep. I just cried nonstop. My entire body was covered in sores. Purpura makes the insides, uh, if any of you are doctors um, or med people, like you know more than me and don't judge me, but it makes your insides swell up as well. I was in terrible pain. I hate doctors to this day, not you people in our congregation, but the rest of them. <laughs> because they, they took my blood over and over. I mean, my earliest memories are just being in a doctor's office and having those, like, these syringe things. They were kind of like square. I don't, they don't use squares. I don't know what they were. Anyway, they take my blood, and they're just one after another. Finally, um, they, went to, they, they took me to the doctor's office, um, and the doctor's like, look, there's really nothing we can do for him. I mean, he's not going to die, so good news. Um, but my mom's like, I don't care. Like, this kid is bawling constantly because he's in so much pain. He's like, I'm sorry. Like, there's really not a lot we can do for you. You just have to let it run its course. And so that evening, my mom went home, and she's like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And so she called the church. It was a small church my dad is pastor of. And she called the church, and they came, and they gathered around my bed. I was on the trundle bed in the living room. And they laid their hands on me. And I woke up the next morning, and I was healed. Why did God do it then and not other times? Here's what I know. I don't know. But I do know that a world that you and that I, we don't need deep theological explanations explaining all this to us. All we know is that we are desperate for a healing touch from Jesus. And, and the social boundaries for us are different, right? In the stories that we read today, people are willing to break through social boundaries to get to Jesus. 
Ours are different. Ours are the voices in our head of saying, oh, I don't know if that still works. That seems kind of superstitious. Or what will people think of me? Or, or I, you know, I've, I've read this book and they say this, that, and the other, right? And we, we break it all down. Those are the social boundaries. Those are the things that are keeping us from flocking and saying, I just have to touch the corner of his garment because I need to be healed. And what I've decided as a pastor and, and and what we've decided as a leadership team of our church is that, that we want to do and see the things done that Jesus did and saw done. We don't want to just play church. And if Jesus says that, that, that we can do greater things, we are believing that God can still heal. And God can still bring new life and can still renew people who everyone has given up hope on. And healing looks there's a million different ways that healing manifests itself. For some of you, you just need, your heart is broken. You, there's, there's someone here this morning that you, your relationships have been shattered. You have something in your life, maybe it is a marriage, or someone you, you've been dating, or maybe it's a family member, and that relationship looks like it has died and there is no hope. And your heart is broken. You need healing. For others of you, you may need physical healing. There's something that maybe you know about that no one else knows about, and you need a touch from Jesus. Others of you, maybe you lost your job, and your confidence is shot. You think you will never, like, you just, like, you feel as low as you possibly could. I don't know what your story is, but I know that there are people here that need a healing touch of Jesus. So what we're going to do this morning as we come up, and, and I know, like, this year, if this is your second Sunday, you're like, I don't know, like these people seem to, they seem to maybe be a little too Jesus-y for me, and that's okay. Because I realize, like, look, people don't need a church, people don't need a church that, you know, gets all these doctrinal things right, but doesn't, that doesn't call people to come and touch the hymn of Jesus. So what we're going to do is we're going to come forward as we always do. We're going to sing some songs and we're going to, we're going to respond in communion. But, but in the hall, just because there's not space up front, um, some of our pastors and our prayer team are going to be out there um, and they're going to be praying for healing. And they're going to be laying their hands on you and just they're going to ask you what's going on in your life and what do you need healing from? What is that touch from God that you need? And some of you, some of you are like, I do not want to stand in line waiting for communion. I just need to get to Jesus. And if that's you, you can just kind of go around the back door and kind of come in the hall and there will be some people here. But I just think there are some people in this room this morning that need to get to Jesus. And you need someone to lay their hands on you and pray. Let's pray.